Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. Well, coming up on this edition of The Intersection, more material from the Faith Radio Meeting House Broadcast Center at the 2017 National Religious Broadcasters Convention in Orlando. First up, it's Jonathan Falwell of Thomas Road Baptist Church in Lynchburg, Virginia, relating some aspects of leading the church. Then it's Christian musical artist, worship leader, and author Paul Wilbur offering comments on current events from the perspective of the kingdom of God. You'll also hear from Autumn Miles of the Blush Network, who shares information relative to a new survey on domestic abuse and the church. And on this edition of The Intersection, from his very unique vantage point, you'll be hearing from Bishop Robert, who stopped by at NRB to discuss the importance of unity in the body of Christ centered on the message of the gospel. Then, learn about a milestone of the Jesus Film, Josh Newell of the Jesus Film Project discussed at NRB, the celebration of the 1500th translation of the movie, which depicts the life and ministry of Jesus. More material on this edition of the Intersection Podcast. He didn't join me at NRB, but Jimmy Page of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes discussed with me what he sees as the importance of people choosing a word, one word, that characterizes them. Finally, material from a recent conversation with C.C. Heil of the American Center for Law and Justice, bringing word about an American pastor imprisoned in the nation of Turkey on charges related to terrorism. This is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House. I'm Bob Crittenden. Jonathan Falwell is senior pastor of Thomas Road Baptist Church in Lynchburg, Virginia, the church founded by his late father, Jerry Falwell. At the Faith Radio Meeting House Broadcast Center at NRB 2017 in Orlando, Pastor Jonathan related some aspects of his own philosophy on church leadership. From that conversation, this is Jonathan Falwell now. Obviously, there's no question that, that there you know, were and have been and continue to be challenges in regards to leading a church, regardless of the size, regardless of the legacy or the history. I mean, you know, ministry is a difficult thing. Uh, you know, it's a difficult thing because in ministry, what we do is we uh, minister to and help people. And according to God's Word, as you know, people are messed up and people have problems. <laughs> I do, you do, all of our people yep, uh, yep. go through challenges. Romans 3.23, very clear. All of us have fallen short, way short of the glory of God. So there's no doubt uh, that problems are something that is, uh, you know, we always deal with. Uh, you know, with regards to specific areas of ministry and, and transition in those times, you know, uh, God had already been doing something really remarkable in our church in the sense that it was a 50-year-old church at the time, but yet through Dad's incredible leadership, uh, he recognized and knew that if we're going to continue to reach the next generations, the people who are coming down the road, the millennials or whatever that might be, that we do need to tweak and change the way that we do ministry uh, in order to continue to minister and to reach them. And so that was a, a process that Dad had already begun uh, before he passed away. And so, to be quite honest with you, in that element of it, it you know, there was, there was quite a bit of, uh, of, of underground work or, you know, laying the groundwork for where we were going that my dad had actually started with our people, with our, you know, leadership in our church. So, you know, we already had kind of a picture of what that looked like. We had a picture of kind of where we were going. And so, uh, to me, that was a great blessing because I didn't have to come in as a new kid on the block and they say, we need to change this and change that. You know, my dad had already started that work. Now, granted, you know, the one thing that we never change is we never change the message. Sure. Uh, you know, my dad many times talked about how we never change the message, but we always have to be changing the method. In other words, the delivering that word of God, delivering the gospel of Jesus Christ is something that always needs to be morphing and changing and transforming 
because the people, the, the generations, the, the individuals that we're ministering to, they're constantly changing, constantly transforming. You know, the culture itself is transforming. So we need to make sure that we're doing all that we can to speak into where people are, not where we would like them to be. And so that's what we've always done. Our church has a 60-year history of doing that. We continue to do that. Challenges? Man, there's always challenges. Uh, you know, there's always situations and hiccups and bumps in the road that we hit upon and things that we've got to deal with. But, you know, in large, uh, in large part, um, when you're faithful to the Word of God and to the work of God, I believe even when you hit those challenges, those, those crises moments, uh, I believe it's easy to kind of come through those, and God allows you grace to make it mm. through those moments if you are remaining faithful to what it is that God has called us to do. And so, you know, we know the local church is very special in God's eyes. We know that according to Matthew 16, 18, you know, he said the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So if the gates of hell can't stop the church, I can guarantee you a uh, few little problems within the church are certainly not going to stop the church either. What have you seen to be perhaps one of the the biggest areas of change, and, and let's take it from a couple of different standpoints. One is the, the micro standpoint. You're, from your standpoint as a local church pastor in Thomas Road specifically, what have you found the biggest change to be? And then I want to broaden that here in our next segment to talk about what you're seeing God do in the church, the body of Christ, nationwide, maybe even worldwide. But first of all, what have you seen to be the biggest change well, from your standpoint? Yeah, I think over the last uh, you know decade or so, what we've seen in the church is a transformation from being a... a where the church is a proclamation vehicle uh, to the church becoming more of an equipping vehicle. Mm. Uh, you know, it used to be back in the early days when I grew up, when you grew up. I mean, we went to church to hear the preacher preach the Word of God, and sure. that's where the gospel was proclaimed. We wanted to bring our friends to the church to reach them with the gospel. They'd come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. Things have changed these days, and where now it's it's less about hey, you know, we're the church, so we want you to come and and and, and help us as we reach the people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now, where it's hey, we're the church, we want to help you reach your neighbors and your coworkers and your friends and your family with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's more of an equipping work of getting our people to recognize that all of us are ministers, all of us are pastors and ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that we need to take that responsibility on individually. Uh, in order to reach people. Mm. Jonathan Falwell here on The Intersection. Learn more through the website falwell.com. The church's website is trbc.org. Well, The Intersection continues now with Christian musical artist, worship leader, and author Paul Wilbur. He visited the Faith Radio Meeting House Broadcast Center at NRB and offered commentary on current events. He also discussed his book, A King is Coming. Here now is Paul Wilbur with a conversation excerpt beginning with a reference to the song Days of Elijah. I have to tell you, Bob, in the 90s when I recorded it in Jerusalem, I almost felt guilty about singing it because the days of famine, darkness, sword, these are the days of Elijah, bad government, bad times, on the edge of depravity. It was like that was somewhere over there. That was not our day-to-day -day experience. And, and it was almost like when I would sing that song, I was singing about other people. Well, um, I, I really believe that we've been visited on some of these different areas. And, and one of the main reasons is because the voice of righteousness, the voice of the pulpit and the, the synagogue, if you will, the bima and the, and the pulpit, have been removed from our culture to such an extent 
that we have really created a vacuum, been afraid to speak into the culture of the day. So we've become a, a culture that is um, not only non-biblical, but anti-biblical. And, and I believe that that song is very relevant. Oh, for no doubt. Well, it sounds like to me, and we're, we're actually kind of slowly pivoting into some of the content from your new book, A King is Coming. But when we look at the church mm-hmm. and its influence, and we, we still see so many elements of the church and society and thankful for the opportunity here at Faith Radio and our network of stations to partner with churches and ministries. And we know that there is... There is good work that is being done in the church. So we we love the church, the church, the body of Christ. We also recognize that we are in a time where there's a clash of worldviews. There is a battle that is taking place. Mm. I think, and it's something that I've, I've been finding myself saying again and again here through the course of this convention, that you've seen a coalescing of different groups with agendas that might seem to be different from one another. The abortion uh, agenda, for instance, Mm -hmm. the issue of life, the sanctity of life, the sanctity of marriage, the LGBT agenda. There are other agendas that are out there that are, and one one that you actually cover in the book, and that is the Mm anti-Semitic agenda Mm -hmm. that is out there. And I think there's a coalescing of these agendas. And one thread that runs through them is that they embrace philosophies that stand in stark contrast with the Word of God, the kingdom of God. So when you say a king is coming, Mm -hmm. we, we recognize that we're citizens of that kingdom and that there is a purpose for that kingdom here on earth. And right now we're engaged in that dynamic clash of the <laughs> clash of the worldviews or the clash of the titans. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. What no, do you no, think? No, no. Is that no, you, what's your you, take there? You, you say it very well. There, there's this battle behind the scenes, the battle behind the battle. So, yeah. when people say, "What's the why ISIS? Why the the such a strong move of political correctness over and against?" biblical correctness, which is another thing that we speak to in A King is Coming. Um, Why all of this now? Why such a strong anti-Christianity, which I believe is the new anti-Semitism, these things that are being visited on us? Why now? And I, you know, again, the song, These Are the Days of Elijah. And don't misunderstand me. I'm, I'm not bashing the church. I'm saying that our voice has been removed um, on purpose from our culture, and uh, and there's reasons for that. But the the battle behind the battle is a battle for a throne. There is an invisible throne that has been in contention for thousands and th- before recorded time, when the enemy mm. of all mankind said, "I will raise my throne above yours," speaking to God, and I will sit in the most holy place. Now that has a very real place on the face of the earth. It's a little city called Jerusalem. But right now, there's an invisible throne that's coming with a king that is coming to take his rightful place. And there is a struggle behind the struggle. And I say in the book, a king is coming. These are exactly the reasons why we are where we are. And where are we on the timeline before the return of the king? 
that's uh, not for me to say. I'm not a date setter. But we are in the throes of this thing right now. Wow. Paul Wilbur here on The Intersection. Learn more through the website, Paul Wilbur, W-I-L-B-U-R dot com. Well, also joining me at NRB 2017 was Autumn Miles, founder of the Blush Network and author of the book, Appointed, Your Future Starts Now. In that NRB conversation, she discussed with me a recent Lifeway research survey about domestic violence and the church and provided some practical steps churches can take to address these issues. Here now from that conversation is Autumn Miles. Well, there's three things that I'd like to point out. The first off, we found that uh, our pastors were precious, which we know they are, okay? About 90% of them said they believed that their churches were safe havens, which tells us their hearts. If a pastor is going to put that in a finding, we know that his heart is to develop and to have a safe house for women the pro- and men, because one in seven women are also abused. The problem was that we also found that about 50%, only 50%, about half, said that they had a plan in place in order to accommodate a domestic violence victim if they were to come forward. So we have 90% saying, my church is is a safe haven, but only 50% are prepared. To a domestic violence victim, they cannot risk it if their church is not prepared. Um, So those are the things, uh, it, it just tells me that those churches, they aren't a safe haven, but they believe that they are. Also, another thing that we found is that, um, when the churches were pulled, only about 30% of the churches that were pulled said that they had anyone come forward that was in a domestic violence, violent relationship for three years. And if the statistic says one in four women are abused and in three years, only 30% of the churches represented had any sort of idea that this was happening in their church, it tells me there's a huge disconnect. Well, you could make the case, and I think the statistics would be on your side, that there are people that are suffering in their homes, and they are suffering in silence. They are not coming forward. They may be coming forward to other wonderful organizations that deal with domestic violence, but perhaps they're not coming to the church. So how is it that the church can be more proactive to identifying people in their congregation that may be in this situation, but they're not coming forward? Well, first of all, we have to understand if you don't have a plan in place, precious pastors, you are not prepared. You're just not. So you can go to my website and look at look at um, 10 different steps that we've developed. But I just want to say very clearly, the first way that you can help is simply say it from the pulpit. If you get up in your pulpit and you say, listen, domestic violence is not tolerated in this church. This is what you do, Bob. First of all, you t- you tell the victim. I have an ally in this church. I have an ally in this pastor. If I come forward, maybe he'll help me. And you also tell the abuser, I better stop what I'm doing. So simply making an announcement from the pulpit, even if it's during Domestic Violence Awareness Month, you can literally send messages to both the victim and uh, the abuser at the same time. Another thing I would do is I would familiarize myself with a shelter in your area. These domestic violence shelters are everywhere. You simply have to reach out and get one as a, as a resource for you if someone was to come forward. Um, we also encourage any victim that comes forward to call the police. But 
I'll have to say this is where the church leadership kind of trips up a little bit because they think, okay, you're, you don't have a bruise. You haven't called the police. Um, is this really happening? What you don't, what, what these pe people need to understand, these leaders need to understand is that abusers are so manipulative. They will bruise you where you cannot see it. They will absolutely manipulate you to a point where you would never call the police for fear of what could happen to your children or to yourself or he might be saying or she might be saying she's going to kill herself. So they've really sort of covered all their bases, which is why a lot of victims don't call the police. We would love to have a police report, but understand women do not call the police because they, because, because they will be reprimanded by their abuser if they do. Autumn Miles here on The Intersection. You can learn more through the website autumnmiles.com. This is the Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. Learn more through the website meetinghouseonline.info. Through that site, you'll find a link to the download center marked Meeting House On Demand, through which you can listen to, download, or share full conversations with recent guests on the Intersection Podcast. Also, through that site, you can subscribe to the Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. There are links to two blogs. Also, you can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. You can also get connected to video content at meetinghouseonline.info. Well, the intersection continues now with Bishop Robert. He is a bishop in the Communion of Evangelical Episcopal Churches. In our conversation at NRB 2017, he shared his heart for Christian unity as he expresses in the book, Count to One, God's Plan for Christian Unity. This is Bishop Robert now. Biblical unity that forgets the gospel is unity without a purpose. Yeah. We were created to be diverse. If you look at what Paul teaches about the body of Christ in the New Testament, we learn that we are different from one another. We are hands, feet, arms, legs, toes. The eye can't say to the ear, because you're not an eye, I don't need you. We were created by God to be diverse, and our diversity is our strength. It should not be a cause division. We can reach different people because of our different gifts. And we are supposed to be one. Jesus, at the Last Supper in John 17, he prayed a very simple prayer when he said, Father, I pray not only for these, meaning the apostles around the table, mm -hmm. but also for them who would believe in me because of their word, that they would be one. The reason, he goes on to explain a few verses later, is so that he will be glorified. As you and I live out the great commandment to love one another, it equips us to fulfill the great commission. And it's all about people coming to Jesus and his glory. Well, there's something that I have said on the air about diversity. Diversity should not be divisive. That's right. And unfortunately, in the church today in the body of Christ, we have a lot of different streams. We have local church bodies, we have denominations, we have other ministries, and that's great. It's, all, it's wonderful that there are different expressions of the nature of our Lord Jesus Christ. The problem comes if we allow those differences to divide us and keep us apart from really doing what God wants to do through his church. So, so let's dig down a little bit deeper when you talk about how we can be united even in the midst of our differences. Sure. Our diversity is divine. It's division that's diabolic. You don't see the enemy getting crack dealers to argue about who's the best crack dealer. You don't see the enemy getting 
people who are running houses of prostitution to argue about which one is doing the better job getting customers. But in the church, we argue about the craziest things. But all through even our recent history, we've seen the church come together on the basis of being willing to proclaim the gospel. When Billy Graham would come into a community, the broad spectrum of churches Mm. in the community would come together to proclaim the gospel. They would put their denominations aside, not to walk away from them, but to link arms and be a unified voice proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ into that community. And in many cases, afterwards, they would continue to work together in many ways. That's the kind of unity we're talking about. Not a uniformity. We're not all supposed to be the same. We are supposed to be different. And certainly not a uh, unification where we're all one church under one leader because we're supposed to be different. The arm is different from the nose. It's supposed to be. And when you get the nose to try to do the arm's job, it does a horrible job. And something also to be aware of is that Christian unity, there's a word, I'm not, I'm not fond of the word personally, but because of what, in, what it implies, and that is ecumenical or what? ecumenism. Ecumenism. Where you have people of a variety of different faith backgrounds, whether it be Christian or, or whatever, right. you know, whatever the situation. When you see, I'll just say like this, if you see the word interfaith or ecumenical, then to me that doesn't necessarily communicate that this is a group of Christians that are all exactly. united under the banner of the cross. So how do we regard those outside the body of Christ as far as as unity and working together and things of that sort, or is that... No, Bob, that's a great question. First of all, what you're discussing, when, when we're talking about what is supposed to be happening, these different elements of the body of Christ working together, it's harmony. It's different parts of the body of Christ. Body Jesus of Christ. said, I pray for those who will believe in me. So when you now start talking about people outside of that circle, and you're talking about people who don't believe in Jesus, that's not a time for unity and faith. That's an evangelistic opportunity. Mm. And all kinds mm. of doors open for that. If there's, let's just say there's a, a, a massive earthquake in some country, and the Christian body responds. Well, you might be standing next to a Buddhist. The person who needs help doesn't matter if they receive their blanket from a Buddhist or a Baptist. But the Baptist can share their faith in Christ with the Buddhist. Bishop Robert here on The Intersection. Find out more by going to the website bishoprobert.com. Also joining me at NRB 2017 at the Faith Radio Meeting House Broadcast Center was Josh Newell, Director of Marketing and Communications for the Jesus Film Project. In the course of our conversation, he shared about the concept of the film and the celebration of the 1500th translation of the Jesus Film. He also discussed the Reaching the Nations Among Us initiative. From that conversation, here now is Josh Newell. When the movie was being produced, it was shot on location where Jesus walked, where Jesus talked, and um, and all those interactions that happened at the Sea of Galilee are actually on those locations. So it's one of the most, if not the most, biblically accurate movie about the life of Christ because it has those attentions to detail in the dress and in the language and those type of things, but it's also carrying forth from the book of Luke where 60% of the, the movie is derived directly from the gospel of Luke. Wow. So, and I know you have 1,500 different translations here. What would you say would be maybe the most challenging translation 
that uh, that has taken place for the well, Jesus I mean, Bell. the most recent one was the Dasenach language, that the 1500th, and um, because we're committed to seeing the Jesus film translated to every single language on Earth, there's 7,000 of them. So we're we you're well some, on your way. We're well on our yeah. way. That's right. Um, but the the Dasenach people live in in this really great region between South Sudan, Ethiopia, and Kenya. And to get there, you have to travel by plane four hours from Nairobi into the middle of a wasteland of Africa. So you can picture like this broad expanse of, of desert with one tree on the horizon and, and some several huts that are around and, and a bunch of cattle. And that's where the, what the Dasenach do primarily. They're cattle herders. And so to get there is a challenge. To work with people who are committed to reaching those people is a challenge. You think about you know, what it takes to, to motivate somebody to, to live among those people. And, uh, and, and to actually pull off a recording without electricity, running water, and those type of things is, uh, is, is just, it's a, it's a testimony to what we're all about. Well, what's interesting, you think about showing a film, and I would say, would, would most of the showings of the Jesus film be in a, a large outdoor gathering place or inside of a church, or is it kind of a mixed bag? Yeah, well, it is a mixed bag. I mean, traditionally what we've done is use 16-millimeter projectors, so uh-huh. that's how we started out with this thing, is um, teams would go into a village in an outdoor setting in the village square, set up a large screen with a projector and generators and lights and all that stuff. And, uh, and so that's how a lot of people heard the gospel for the first time. The digital age changes a lot. And so because we have a platform now that gives um, the Jesus film for free online or on an app, people can connect to that and use the Jesus film on their own web presence or their own social media. And so we saw probably about 50 million gospel presentations occur through digital alone last year. Wow. And, uh, and, and that kind of is... We're, we're still primarily doing face-to-face stuff, but digital's really taking off. Yeah. And if you are in a very remote location where you don't have access to electricity, hey, yeah. have generator will travel, right? Have generator or have iPad will travel. travel. Wow. So either one of those that things is, work. Uh, that's very cool. Well, tell me about the Reaching the Nations Among Us initiative of the Jesus Oh, Home man, Project. it's fantastic. So the Reaching the Nations Among Us is an initiative here the Reaching the Nations Among Us initiative is a project that's located here in the U.S. to minister to people that um, aren't necessarily from the U.S. originally. And so they speak another language, usually immigrants or, um, or even second or third generation um, immigrants. And, and our ministry is really about connecting with local churches to reach their communities in the places that are really, you know, are, are kind of afterthoughts. Today, you know, if you think about like those conversations that are going on about immigration and about, um, you know, about foreigners in the United States within our borders, the conversation really isn't positive. But we offer a really easy ministry tool because we believe that Jesus is about reaching everyone, regardless of where they are. And missions isn't just outside the borders of the United States. They're actually right here in our backyard. So reaching the nations among us is simply that effort designed to reach people that live in our own cities that um, that typically we aren't really thinking about. Mm. Josh Newell here on The Intersection. Learn more at jesusfilm.org. Well, a couple of post-NRB conversations took place, including one with Jimmy Page, serving as a vice president for the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. In our recent conversation, he laid out the concept of a life word 
included in the book co-written by him, along with John Gordon and Dan Britton, who are also with FCA. The book is entitled Life Word, Discover Your One Word to Leave a Legacy. Here now is Jimmy Page. It's really a follow-up to our first book. Our first book was called One Word That Will Change Your Life, which was really designed to kind of throw out New Year's resolutions and provide focus on one word for that year that would bring life change, incredible life change, in all dimensions of your life. That was the first book. This, so that's kind of a year-to-year life transformation process. Life Word, discovering your one word to leave a legacy, is what I would say begins with the end in mind. You know, it, it lets you stand at the end of your life and look back and say, you know, what difference do I want to make? What mark do I hope to leave? Um, how do I live this life with more purpose and passion um, so that I can stay on mission and really make a difference in the lives of others? That's what this is all about. So when you talk about coaches and athletes, you talk about the, the influence of a coach today in the life of a young athlete. It's an incredible influence. So we help coaches to leverage that influence for a, the most positive and godly effect in the lives of their young athletes. We've launched this with thousands of teams around the country. The one word that will change your life, you know, there's, there's individuals who for that season will pick a word for the year, whether it's perseverance or overcome or passion or drive or commitment, whatever their individual words are. And a lot of teams will then select a word for the year for that team, the theme that you were suggesting, which really brings unity and a common purpose. The cool thing about LifeWord, LifeWord is kind of the title of your story whereas one word are chapters in your book, you know? So the title of that book is Life Word. It's the thing that, that drives you and defines you as a person um, so that you have focus for your life so you don't get distracted by things that, that maybe aren't best for you. And I'll give you an example of this. We, we've discovered through research that the number one regret that people have at the end of life is that they didn't live the life they were made to live. If you can imagine, you know, they've surveyed people within the last 12 weeks of their life and said, what's your number one regret? And Mm. to a person, they've said, I didn't live the life I was made to live. I I abandoned some dreams. I um, took the safe road. I maybe I compromised and and took, uh, you know, and, and just didn't pursue with risk and with passion the things that I was made to do. LifeWord is designed to help you live the life that you're made to live. So when you discover that one word that kind of defines you and drives you, that, that tombstone word, if you will, the word that they'll put on your tombstone that says, man, when I, think of, when I think of Bob, I think of passion. Oh, my gosh. And then people will tell stories about how you living on passion impacted their life and, uh, and made a difference. Well, let's talk about arriving at that life word. That's a really heady concept when you talk about your overall purpose really being boiled down into one word. Obviously, a lot of thought and care would go into arriving on that. What are some of the components as far as determining one's life word? Oh, it's fan- you're exactly right. It is a process that requires some thought and deliberation. You know, the first thing we tell people to do is to consider your funeral. It's to ask yourself the question, what do I hope that the people that are most important to me, that will know me best, say about me at my funeral? What are are the things that I hope I've left behind? Because we define legacy as the things that you leave behind 
that live on in others. It's not the tangible stuff like a, a home or an inheritance. Instead, it's those character qualities, those intangible things, the, the things of faith and substance that you hope live on in other people. So the first step is, hey, what do, what do I hope that people will say about me? And, and then from there, we think that your life word is found at the intersection of three things, three circles, power, purpose, and passion. Those three things. So as we help you in the book, walk you through the process of discovering your power, your purpose, and your passion, then your life word will bubble to the surface as, as you contemplate in prayer. Lord, is this the word for me? We believe that it will become very obvious, and we've seen it over and over again come to light uh, as people journey through this process. Jimmy Page here on The Intersection. Find out more by going to the website, getoneword.com. Well, another recent conversation from the Meeting House radio program. I talked with Cece Heil, Executive Counsel for the American Center for Law and Justice. In our conversation, she discussed the case of an American pastor, Andrew Brunson, held in prison in Turkey. She provided some updates on recent developments. Here now from that conversation is Cece Heil. Last year on October 7th, he received notice to report to the migration management station and just thought, well, this is just for my permanent residence visa, you know, not, not anything problematic, reported and was arrested and held in migration management um, from October 7th uh, for, I believe it was about 63 days. And during those first 30 days, he was not allowed an attorney. He was not allowed to speak to any U.S. consulate officials. Um, so, you know, in violation of a lot of international um, treaties that we have. So after um, about 63 days in migration management, he was then abruptly transferred in the middle of the night um, to a prison in uh, Izmir, Turkey, on December 9th. And he has been there since December 9th. Um, and it's just been problematic because Turkey's under a state of emergency, so the file has been sealed. No information really has been released. The only official documents we have uh, state that he's been charged with membership of an armed terrorist organization. So it's just been very frustrating. Well, according to the ACLJ.org website, Pastor Andrew released a statement late last week. It was delivered to U.S. Embassy officials. Talk about the content of that statement, if you would. Sure. You know, I think the most moving part of his statement is, you know, please don't leave me here. And as a United States citizen and, you know, the U.S. and Turkey are NATO allies, um, it is just incredible that he has been trapped in, you know, prison uh, literally since October 7th. He's been incarcerated. And um, he was making, you know, an official plea is just don't forget me and please don't leave me here. There has to be something that you can do. And um, that came right before Secretary Tillerson's uh, visit to Turkey last week, and you know I believe it was a very timely message that got out to the U.S. Embassy, embassy officials and the State Department, um, and that led to Secretary Tillerson then actually um, bringing up Brunson with Erdogan and then meeting with Mrs. Brunson after his meeting. So um, I believe we actually have some movement here, and we're in ver- we're encouraged uh, that the Trump administration, from very high levels, is um, engaging in this situation. 
There was a meeting that took place here recently in Turkey, the Secretary of State meeting with senior Turkish officials. Any idea what may have been brought up in that meeting by the Secretary of State? I can confirm that um, Secretary of State Tillerson did bring uh, up Pastor Brunson directly with President Erdogan, um, and that according to our information, the um, only information that was given was that there was an indictment that was coming in the near future. And after speaking to the uh, Turkish attorney, um, once that indictment actually is handed down, then a trial date can be set and the file will actually um, be unsealed. So uh, we'll have access to documents, whatever the charges are, whoever if there are witnesses or whatever, we will finally have that information. However, Turkey's still operating under a state of emergency, so really nothing is certain. But it's encouraging that at least this uh, case is finally um, being pushed forward and hopefully we'll have some sense of kind of normalcy where we can actually see the charges and prepare a defense. Recently, Secretary of State Tillerson met with the wife of Pastor Andrew Brunson, Noreen. Talk about that meeting and and what has emerged from it. Yes, and it, it's neat to, to hear from Noreen. I think um, she um, can meet with her husband on um, a weekly basis, and, and he had gotten information to her saying, you know, I think, I just feel like you're going to be able to meet with Secretary Tillerson. And indeed she did. And I think, you know, just the support of knowing that the United States government is aware of the situation and, you know, they're um, committed to helping, um, that was just a, a big, I think, sigh of relief, relief to, you know, both the Brunsons. And I know the State Department has been assured that Secretary Tillerson will stay in touch moving forward as well. So this isn't just a one-time, you know, visit and then Pastor Brunson's off the radar. Hopefully this will be something that we can work with um, the State Department and assure his release. Mm. C.C. Heil here on The Intersection. Learn more about this case at aclj.org. A petition is available to sign in support of Pastor Andrew. We are nearing the end of this edition of The Intersection, a weekly production of The Meeting House. Learn more through meetinghouseonline.info. There's a link to the download center marked Meeting House On Demand. You can also get subscribed to The Intersection podcast. Two blogs can be accessed. One is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House program. The other is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. You can also follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page You can also get connected to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.